Blindness is essentially just the physical condition of not seeing, and yet we tend to project so much more onto it and onto those who experience it. Selena Mills also came to this realisation when she began to lose her vision, and it caused her to embark on a journey into the past where she explores how the idea of blindness has shaped Western ideas about everything from good and evil to, uh, well, to sex and language. Selena's new book is called Life Unseen, a story of blindness. It's uh, part history, part memoir, and entirely fascinating. And Selena, it's a delight to have you with us. Could you start by telling us a bit more about your own experience of, of sight loss? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I guess I explain it to people in very simple terms, which is I'm blind in one eye when I was born, and then I've lost the sight in my left eye progressively over time, um, owing to a growth at the back of my eye, which at this current time is inoperable, um, which leaves me with about 10 to 15% vision on a good day, depends what the light's doing. And it essentially makes me legally blind, so I'm not not allowed near a car, um, thank God. Um, and I have issues with functionality in terms of walking around. Um, I use a white cane, and I have accessible technology on all my uh, computers and phones. Andrew talked about uh, people treating him differently. And since they saw the white cane, is is that your experience? Definitely. Um, I think that was actually what promoted me to write my book is that I just got treated so differently. And I was the same person I was two days ago, you know, and um, people who I really trusted and, and liked and they just sort of, there was a sigh, either sighs of pity or complete um, fantasies that I was compensated somehow in math, math, mythically had inner vision, was wiser, had a better memory, had a better sense of smell, better sense of hearing. And the problem was that none of these things are true. And if they are true, they're inherent to me simply because I can't see, but mostly because I just am me. So I I got fed up with um, the fantasies that people had about my blind life. Selena, please introduce us to Nandy. Ah, well, you have done. You have. You actually read the book. <laughs> um, so well, it's been is, a great help because you have printed it in a large type. Oh, well, we wanted to. I think uh, we were very keen on making the book as accessible to blind and visually impaired people um, from the very start because we thought, you know, this is about ownership of your past. Um, so Nandi is a Neanderthal that was discovered on the side of the Tigris River. And Nandi was found in a cave. His skeleton was found in a cave amongst other skeletons. And what was really interesting was that he was 45 years old, which is really old for Neanderthal. Usually they die between 28, 29. And he's inside the cave and everybody else's skeletons are outside. And they start looking at his data. So his, they carbon data him, they look at his DNA, they look at all sorts of things. And one of the things that comes back from the tests is that he has an eye disease um, that definitely was in his sockets and it would have rendered him blind. 
So when I heard about him for the first time, I was sitting at some like, you know, university dinner and this woman was telling me about him. I was like, good Lord, you know, how did he survive? And she said, well, we don't know, but we presume someone took care of him. And when I went home that night, I just thought, hang on, how do we presume that someone took care of him? I mean, we just don't know. What if he was like, happened to be by a berry bush and, you know, some water? Well, then he's going to be fine. He's set up. So I, I find myself using this story of Nandi Neanderthal, not only the evidence that we found, but also the um, the stories around him made me think about blindness in a completely different way. And I love the fact that he's 45,000 years old and the <laughs> blindness has been, you know, he, he's been with us forever and ever and ever. Now, this reminds us that uh, blindness has been around for as long as, uh, as humans have, but I didn't realise it's becoming more prevalent. Well, there is a rise, but we don't know, um, we do not know if this is partly due to um, collecting of evidence, so we report on it more. Um, we also know that more blindness is fixable, um, so... You know, when you get over 60, sorry, guys and girls, but when you're over getting a bit older, your sight's going to go. And the question is whether that's, you know, something that can be treated or not. And if it can't, then you sort of become part of the realms of the blind community. So, yes, there is a rise, but it's it's sort of manageable in the sense of that we have options to deal with it. It depends where you are in the world. So going back to history, there's been a, a certain mysticism about blindness, hasn't there? It's been associated yes. with visions and, and prophesying. Yes, it has. And I think that's what's really interesting, but it's fictional. So you've got ancient Greece and ancient Rome, um, amazing writers, you know, everything from Homer, Sophocles, uh, Euripides, all writing about blind characters. So they're not real, they're definitely fiction, but they're all ascribed to great compensation so Tiresias is the most famous one and you know he sees Athena in the bath naked <gasps> shocking he has his eyesight taken away by the gods but in in replacement for that he's given inner vision and so we've got this amazing character who can prophesize what's going to happen and at the other end of the scale you've got someone like Oedipus who takes his eyes out because he slept with his mummy and killed his daddy, <laughs> which is not so good. Um, but you, it's interesting that he chose his eyes as the thing to take out, because it, for him that was the, the gift that he had, the best gift he could sacrifice was his sight. But, of course, so the, the idea of sight and light is absolutely inextricably bound up with religion. Let there be light. I know, I know. And so I think it sets up these binary oppositions, light, dark, truth, falsehood, good, bad. So the beginning of the Bible has, you know, in the beginning there was light and the light was good, which implicitly sets up darkness to be bad. And that's all the way through the Bible, through many, many religions, actually. Um, I was actually looking into Aboriginal uh, concepts of blindness, and I haven't found anything out specific yet. But um, it's very interesting that different cultures all refer to light as the sort of giving of energy and the giving of truth, whereas darkness is bad. So I, di I didn't realise there was also an association with the devil and the Antichrist. 
I know. I mean, this is the things that sort of cheered me up in a way. I thought, wow, I've got a lot of power. <laughs> <laughs> I just got really excited. I was like, oh, I could be evil. Um, no, I think what's interesting is that we have stigmatized blindness um, in different ways, in different eras. So each era, you looks at blindness in a different way in terms of what it needs out of the blindness, so to speak. So you kind of project onto blindness, this state of just not seeing, and you project onto it whatever your era needs. So medieval times, they needed, you know, like, how do we decide you're the devil? Ah, you've got funny eyes. <laughs> I'm talking to the devilish Selena Mills about her book, <laughs> Life Unseen, A Story of Blindness. Now, it would be easy to think that we could put these, uh, well, these terrible stereotypes to bed, but that hasn't been your experience, has it? Uh, I am actually shocked at how um, I've had moments where I've been treated quite badly. Um, I was walking once down a train station and um, I had my cane and I knew what I was doing. I'd been on the train before and I got off to the train the gates and a guard said to me, um, can I see your tickets? So I put out my tickets. And then he said, can I see your disability pass? I said, yes, here it is. And then he said, well, well you're faking it. You're, you're totally not. I beg your pardon. He, say, he well, said you were faking it. Yes. And I said, so I'm, I'm very patient and kind. And I go, yes, no, I understand. Not everyone understands, you know, the spectrum of blindness. That, you know, you can see light and dark or fuzzy and blurry. And... Um, he went off on one and he started, he's like, well, you people, you people. I was like, oh, who are the you people? So I said, oh, um, what do you mean? And he's like, yes, I saw you. You were completely fine. I was like, well, of course. I, I you know, I know this, the platform. I know the station. I know where my tickets are. I know how to get around. And he said, you people, you think you can, you know, you're just a burden on society. But anyway, he went off on one and I kind of lost it myself because having been polite up to that point, I was like, oh okay, there is nothing that's going to get through to you, like rationality, thoughtful consideration. Um, and so I pulled out my false eye, which is um, made of perspex and hand-painted. I was like, oh, I'll tell you what's fake. And I <laughs> ripped out my false eye and like, everyone went, oh. <laughs> um, and, and he shut up and he said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But I thought, God, I had to do that in order to prove myself. Selena, thought, I'm surprised you didn't give him a thump with the stick. Well, I might have, I might have by accident, but um, I think it just shocked me, and that's why I started looking at things like the devil and faking it, and um, even French, you know, thirteenth-century farce. They had blind people put in a pen with their sticks, and they were told, "If you can um, find the pig um, in this pen, you can have it," which was you know, quite an expensive item to have in those days, like having getting Apple AirPods or something like that now. So. You get a load of blind people as entertainment running around a pig pen with their sticks. And then, you know, someone gets the pig and then someone goes, oh, well, you must have seen it. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, whatever whatever blind people do, we're going to get questioned. And I think that that really shocked me. I didn't expect that so much. I thought, I thought that was in the past. I read that you were shocked by a daytime telly show called Ellen and I'm not familiar with it, but please tell me the story. Oh, so Ellen was a, is a massive um, show in America, had millions and millions of viewers. It's now ended. And Ellen is a, a presenter, and she had a 
a show called um, part of her show was called um, something like crazy musical chairs and lots of exclamation marks. And they put people every week with blindfolds on the stage looking for a prize. And the audience loved it. They thought it was hilarious. People groping around with their hands in the air, trying to find their way around this sort of area of the stage. And it was, you know, really difficult to watch it thinking this is entertainment, watching people with their arms stretched out. Um, And I think I found that really difficult to watch too, even though I don't think there was any malintent, there was no evil intention, but it was the idea that pantomime is is part of blindness somehow. Um, So I I think it's really interesting how blindness is portrayed and how how it's an entertainment to the to humanity. Selena, I want to raise with you something I've already discussed on the program tonight, and that is the, the Western obsession with wanting to fix or cure mm. any uh, mm. well any perceived impairment. You must come up against this a lot. I think everybody does. I mean, I think whenever you've got something wrong with you, there's an instant desire to to fix. And I think it's really important to say from the very, very beginning that someone, it's an individual decision, um, what you choose to have an attempt to do in order to fix your eyesight. Um, so by no means would I say to someone, don't go and have that cataract surgery or, you know, don't get glasses. I mean, that is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the the, the push and the desire to fix has been massive in Western culture, whether it's just to take a pill or uh, have an operation. And it turns out that quite a lot of people who've had blindness in their lives and then were offered opportunities to get it fixed did not did not enjoy or benefit or even like the consequences of getting their sight back because they'd lived their life as a blind person. I discussed that once on the program with Oliver Sacks. Oh, did you meet him? Oh, how amazing. Yeah, no, he was a a frequent guest in the good old days. But uh, I I think it's now it's the appropriate time for you to tell us the story of Marisa Theresia von Paradis. Oh, she's amazing. So... She's born in the middle of the 18th century, so about 1759, and she is blind. She's, she has scarlet fever, I think, when she's about two, 18 months, and she's blind. But she also happens to have a brilliant talent for music. And she's born into the court. She's born into privilege and into education, which helps. And the empress of the time, Maria Theresa, adopts her basically and says right I'm going to pay for all your tuition and your training because you're obviously got talent and she becomes this phenomenal composer and musician and she she becomes friends with Mozart, Haydn, you know a whole sort of Salieri, all this amazing cohort of musicians from the 18th century Vienna and she goes on tour she's you know, she 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 plays with George III in, in Britain. She goes to France and she meets um, some amazing people, including the man who trains Louis Braille. And she's just phenomenal. And then she comes back to Vienna and she starts a school for blind musicians and she does concerts every weekend and basically 
creates this legacy of helping and supporting blind musicians. And isn't it interesting that we don't know her and yet we know Mozart? So he dies impoverished. You know, his, his music is actually not played for quite a while after his death. Um, and Teresa was doing really, really well. So not only I think partly is because she was a woman and so therefore women did not have the same privileges as men in terms of access and self-promotion, but also she was blind. And I think, um, you know, obviously she didn't seem to be held back by it. She, she went forth and played and composed. And she also, the other thing I love about her is she invented beautiful and clever objects to help her. So she had raised maps made for her out of papier-mâché. She had long strips of silk, which she would tie knots in um, so she could think about key changes in music. I mean, she was just, and she had cards made for her so she could play cards with the court. And I just, I love the idea that she not only existed and flourished and did well, but she lived a really interesting and varied life and also had quite a few lovers. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the reasons, not the lovers so much, but the whole package, that's one of the reasons you co-wrote an op- a chamber opera about her. As you do, as you do. Yes, that was an accident. Um, I was sitting <laughs> with a director and we were drinking a glass of wine and I said, oh, there's not enough disabled women in in, in opera and if they are, they're, they're, they die <laughs> quite soon. And the director's like, oh, yes. And I said, oh, I've always wanted to write a play about this woman. And she said, no, 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 it's an opera. And I, and she's completely right. So um, we did two years of development and um, thinking about how to portray her without focusing in on her medical side, because otherwise it would just be yet another story of a blind person being cured or not cured. And she's treated by somebody called Anton Mesmer, which is where Very we Very famous word, gentleman. Mesmerized, exactly. Um, So um, anyway, a group of women, all of whom were disabled in different ways, got together and we put on an opera that was a chamber opera, which we put on in London South Bank, which is the avant-garde place for showing new works, which I I remember standing outside it on the day of uh, of the opening night. I was like, how did I get here? <laughs> and um, it was phenomenal. It was absolutely phenomenal. And I'm really glad that we gave her a voice. And then it went on tour around Britain. Going back to the rhetorical question, how did I get here? I'd like you to tell us about uh, your parents. They sound incredible. Oh, they're bonkers, my parents. Um, so I'm, I'm a very odd mix of sort of Scottish Celtic mother and uh, Eastern European uh, sort of nightclub owner, <laughs> not a club, sort of a clubbish person, father. My dad was six foot ten and my mum was like five foot four, so they were quite interesting even just visually. Um, but I think when they found out that my eyesight was so bad and deteriorating, they kind of had long discussions between themselves about how to raise me. And I think I was talking about this with my mum the other day and I said, oh, people think you sound amazing, mum. <laughs> She's like, oh, do they? Um, I think they made a decision that I should be as independent as possible and that I should have choices as much as I could, as much as anyone else. And I think it, um, but they also thought that for my sister too. So um, I think they were quite unique in like not sending me to a specialist school and um, telling me, you know, 
they tried to make me learn to drive and I was like why why can I can't see I don't think I should do this and my my father was like no you might need to get in a car one day when someone's having a heart attack and drive I was like okay <laughs> and I like the idea that they really thought I had you know that might happen to me because that's what happens to everybody in life we, you know at some point something might happen but your experience as a child was not echoed or pre-echoed by other blind kids through history was it no, I mean, even my contemporaries who are blind now tell me that you know, most, of them, most of my really um, dear friends say that they were sent off to specialist schools where they were also taught to be independent, but it was, you're blind, you're over there in the corner in a boutique setting. And if you look at the 19th century, which I think was devastating for um, most disabled people, not just blind people, um, the workhouse was the answer. Like, you know, if you can't, you know, they... And, I think pre-19th century, most blind people stayed at home. And in some ways, you could argue that people had a better life before the 19th century. And then the Brits and the Victorians, just bonkers, um, shoved everyone into workhouses. And blindness was considered, you know, in a way, um, it, it sort of fueled the world disabled. So if you're abled, you can go to the factory and you can do monotonous, repetitive things. And if you're disabled, you, you, which is the negative, um, then you can't. And therefore, you're not part of the economic structure of the empire. And um, I think it's really, really shocking, actually, what the 19th century, how it shifted perceptions of blindness. Selena, given my sight problems, I've become a big fan of the audio book. But you find great joy in audio description. Would you tell me what it is and why you like it so much? So basically, before we get cracking on it, it's um, a narrative that runs parallel to whatever is on a television or event or play or sports event. Um, and you wear a little headphone either in your ear or over your ears. And it's somebody who's at the same time as you're watching or somebody else is watching, you get described to. So, for example, if it's a thriller, okay, he comes through the door. She does not see him. Uh, he stabs her. <laughs> But um, it can be really, really funny. Um, so you 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 can listen in effect to Scandi Noir. Oh yes, you've got to have Scandi. I, I do my ironing to audio descriptive Scandi Noir. And actually, what's really interesting is it's become a positive for other people. So it's not just for blind people. People put it in their car, and so instead of watching, I don't know some <laughs> Scandi Noir, they get to drive and listen. And at the same time, there's somebody will be going, you know. Um, they find um, a half mutilated body on the bridge. <laughs> it is. Uh, it has no clothes on it. <laughs> he touches her breast, and you're like, "Oh God!" You know, like. Oh. Anyway, apparently, people who are sighted listen to it too. But the worst one, I don't know if I've. Um, I, I think I put this in the book about. I went with my sister. Um, I had been asked to review Fifty Shades of Grey, and I went with my sister. And the problem was, it was very, very early days of audio description. And I have to say, it was probably they chose the wrong voice to make an audio description. So while people were having you know, very naughty sex on screen, um, in my ear, I got, <laughs> he pulls her panties down. He spanks her. And it sounded like an accountant, you know, sort of reading your taxes. And my sister and I, I, I shook so hard. And then my sister giggled. And we basically fell on the cinema floor and people called us to shut up because we were so rude. Um, oh. So, if you if you want to, <laughs> it can be entertaining, but not not, not deliberately so. 
Now, Selena, Andrew mentioned feeling positive about the, uh, well, all the new apps and inventions uh, for blindness, but you seem a bit more circumspect. I have to say I'm very, very positive about new technology that helps everybody. I really am. I would not ever step away from saying that. I think what I would say, and this is my sci-fi anxiety going on, which is who owns the technology? Because if you're saying to me that I can have all these amazing seeing eye apps and um, I have something called Zoom text, um, but it costs 1,500 plus tax, who pays that? And if you can afford it, does that put you in a different privileged position from other blind people? And my second one would be, well, if you start getting implants, which they are beginning to find, um, are working with some people with certain conditions, who owns the implant? If it breaks down, who takes it out? Who you know, How is this paid for? And I, I think there's a bit of me that's probably watched way too much sci-fi. Um, and I think I saw once a film about heart replacements and then, you know, if you can't afford the half a million, you... You have to pay on the drip. And what if you miss a payment? And do they come and take it out again? So I think there's a part of me that's circumspect in terms of how how society owns these technologies. And I guess what I'm saying is that they should have, um, there should be regulation around it and that everyone should, in the way that we all have access to the World Wide Web, maybe we should have access either through governments or through some philanthropic pot. We all have access to these programs. Selena, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Selena Mills is the author of a new book, Life Unseen, a story of blindness, published by Bloomsbury. Is it available in Braille, Selena? Um, it's available on electric, so it's digitally available, which can then immediately be translated um, if you need it to Braille. It's on it's audio, so there's me reading it. Two and a half weeks to read it. <laughs> <laughs> So the answer to your question is, I don't know exactly how that works, but I know that you can get an electronic version, which can be translated into Braille. I also know you can get an audio version and a print version, which is extra large print. Selena Mills, you are a tonic, and uh, we encourage everyone to seek it out. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.